Oh, we love you, Gerardo. We're proud of you. Uh, I'll be there and looking forward to it, definitely. And all that God is doing in and through you. So as we come to Acts 10 today, I had invited you to think about hopeless divisions um, that you are mindful of and what you would like to see God overcome. And as I think about the hopeless divisions I've encountered over the last many years, uh, many times the image that comes to mind is the Grand Canyon. In fact, I've even said it out loud. I feel like we're on two sides of the Grand Canyon, this hopeless chasm between us, dividing us. I think of that image as we come to Acts chapter 10, because we have two men in two different places, and even though they're not separated uh, geographically uh, in a large way, in every other way they are very separated, very far apart. And Peter we know about, one of the apostles, and you think about who Peter is. He's a fisherman, he is not a powerful man, he is not rich, He's a peasant. He's Jewish, of course, living in the Roman Empire, and so that means that he is among those who are occupied, those who are oppressed by the empire. And as a Jewish man, he lives a distinctly separate life from Gentiles as it is laid out in the Torah, which helped to keep Israel distinct in being carriers of the faith. And so we, some of these things we know, the distinctions, uh, circumcision, you'll hear mentioned in our passage, as opposed to uncircumcision, the practicing of the Sabbath, but especially the dietary laws. There were foods that were listed, Leviticus 11, foods that were unclean, foods that were considered clean, that they could eat. And these were really important guides for them, rules for them, in order to maintain their distinctiveness as God's people and a part of their identity. You think about what we know about the Jews today. The Jews do not eat pork, right? And they would be willing to lay down their life, as we read in the book of Daniel, in order to stay faithful to these dietary rules because it wasn't just about food, it was about their identity as a people of God. So that's Peter. He's in Joppa, and not far away, north on the seaside, is Caesarea. And there is a man, in the first verse of our passage, in Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. And you can tell by the name of the city, which is named after Caesar, the emperor, um, that he is a man of Rome. He's employed by the Roman Empire. This is where they all had to confess that Caesar is lord. He is a soldier, a man of war. He has soldiers under him. He has slaves. He has power. He has influence. And he's also, of course, a Gentile. And the Gentiles are described in Ephesians 2, using Paul's words, as aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. In other words, outsiders. So Grand Canyon between them, Cornelius and Peter, Jew and Gentile. The one thing you will notice that they have in common is prayer. They are both men devoted to prayer and to worship. 
We're going to be in the whole chapter. It is an amazing story. It is 48 verses long, so you're encouraged to use whatever biblical app or uh, Bible you have and follow along. And let me lead us in prayer before we get into the scripture. Lord, we wait upon you and your Holy Spirit to make this word come alive to us so that we are hearers, truly hearers, and also doers. In Christ's name, amen. Acts chapter 10, listen to God's word to you. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon, at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He answered, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. And then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in. And gave them lodging. The next day he got up and went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him and, falling at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter made him get up, saying, Stand up, I'm only a mortal. And as he talked with them, He went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. 
But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now, may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius replied, four days ago at this very hour, at three o'clock, I was praying in my house when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon, a tanner by the sea. Therefore I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. So now all of us are here in the presence of God to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they invited him to stay for several days. This is the gift of God's word. Thanks be to God. It's just mind-blowing the lengths that God goes to in order to bring together these two. Two men representing two very separate people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. I mean, he gives Cornelius uh, an angel visitation. He gives Peter a vision. He prepares this readiness in Peter to go with these men who arrive just at the right time. The timing is incredible. He does, Peter does what is unlawful for him to do. He goes into their home, he listens, and when he's invited to speak, the very first thing that comes out of his mouth before he even starts talking about Jesus is this. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then before he's even finished talking, the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles. And it's just like when they received the Holy Spirit too. As we mentioned earlier in the psalm in our call to worship, it was obviously the Lord's doing. And it was marvelous in everyone's eyes. Everyone was amazed. 
The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. So immediately they baptize them. They're trying to catch up with the Holy, what the Holy Spirit is doing right before their very eyes and what they are looking at before their very eyes is God's no partiality love in Jesus Christ. That's the thing that's most stunning initially to Peter. No partiality. Overcoming the grand canyon of separation between the Jews and the Gentiles, between Peter and Cornelius. I think of the phrase, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You've heard that, right? Usually in weddings. In fact, this is something Jesus said when he was talking about marriage. What God has joined together, let no one separate. So why am I thinking of it here? Because this is not about a marriage. No, it's not, but it's definitely about what God has joined together. This initiative that God has taken. It's so clear that God has brought these completely separate people groups together as one. Paul describes this, and even with the heading, in Ephesians 2. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's talking about the Gentiles, and he's talking to the Gentiles. For he is our peace in his flesh, in Christ's flesh. He has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. God has done this, this joining together. And yet, even though God has done this joining together, showing no partiality in Jesus Christ, it's always our temptation to show partiality. We know that because of what we find in James chapter 2 where there is this warning against partiality. If you show partiality, James writes, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Even though this is who God is, this is what God has done in Jesus Christ, overcoming all the grand canyons that would separate us we can still be found investing in the chasm, investing in the dividing walls, investing in the hostility, showing partiality instead of the bringing together of diverse people groups in Jesus' resurrected body. One of the things that I have been doing in my prayer time is I've been using a couple of sheets of quotes that Mike Groot gave to me from when the men were reading Martin Luther King Jr.'s book, Letters from a Birmingham Jail. So every morning I would just read one and then another and another until I got through all of them. I have to tell you, they are very convicting and I want to read to you the ones that convicted me the most, just a string of about five of them. He writes, I've been so greatly disappointed with the white church and its leadership who have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. I have watched white churchmen standing on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. The contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice. It is the arch defender of the status quo but the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. Ouch, even though that was written back in the 60s, 
It just had this powerful effect on me, convicting me. Even though I have not been a part of creating the partiality of whiteness and white supremacy, I have been supporting a Grand Canyon that has eroded over hundreds of years without intending to. It's a system that is there and just living in it without speaking up against it is supporting it. And it has shaped us all. Um, I don't get to choose whether to be in it or not. I just get to choose how I live in it and how I respond to it. And whether I will continue to support it or do the hard work of calling it out in Jesus' name and overcoming it. I want to talk about the sheet in this story because the sheet that comes down in this vision when Peter falls into that trance is significant. Peter saw the animals that were inside that sheet. He refused to kill and eat because they were unclean, saying, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that's profane or unclean. Three times this happened. And then Peter was told, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. Three times. Very significant vision. And later we see that when Peter is given the opportunity to speak to Cornelius and to recount that vision, he understands what that vision is about. It's not about eating food. It's about animals representing people, peoples, cultures around the world. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know, if we dig back and excavate this Grand Canyon, and we go all the way back to the colonizing of Africa by Europeans, it was usually accompanied by forcing them to give up their indigenous ways and to become more European in their ways, or perhaps totally European. And usually that meant stripping them of their close relationship with the land and with the animals. I remember when I had the chance to visit Kenya, visit the work of Village Enterprise, we uh, went to see a Maasai community. And the Maasai, they build their whole community, it's encircled, um, as a really a cow pen. The cows are inside and the dung and the flies, it's all inside. And though to us it may look very uncivilized, this is their way of life. This is the way that they live day to day in very close relationship with the animals, with the cows in particular. So animals represent people groups in this sheet. The sheet was symbolic. I truly understand, Peter said, that God shows no partiality. And yet, when we are really honest, we acknowledge that this country was built on a colonizing partiality. And the devastating thing is that it was the church, the 15th century church and the decrees of the church that were at the center of sanctioning this colonizing and the human trafficking of African bodies that went with it. And then, in order to justify this abhorrent practice, Christian leaders at the time began pursuing race science to prove how blacks were inferior to whites 
and this Grand Canyon of white supremacy became more solidified. Robin DiAngelo, in her book, White Fragility, she points out how this Grand Canyon of solidified partiality, solidified white supremacy, is invisible to whites. It's like the great accomplishment of white supremacy, similar to, it's like the devil, the great accomplishment of the devil is to convince us there is no devil. The great accomplishment of whiteness is to convince us that there is no system called whiteness. But it may be invisible to blacks. I mean, not to blacks, to whites. It's not to blacks and to people of color who experience it every single day. Last month, Reverend Kamal Hassan from Richmond, a friend of this church, African-American, he led the Presbytery's vigil, the Juneteenth vigil. And it was so powerful to hear this man say very, very slowly, we can't breathe. The vigil included remembering the names of those who had been killed and naming them over nine minutes, almost nine minutes, same way that George Floyd, same timing of George Floyd being killed. But then the truly powerful part too was having the chance to hear, he opened it up for people of color to share their own stories if they wanted to. And all of them had a story of being harassed, of being profiled, of being humiliated and demeaned. Whites were encouraged to listen, just as Peter went to that place, and the first thing he did was listen. What was the Holy Spirit doing here? And then encouraged to do something, to participate in their 21-day racial equity challenge, and then to regather and talk about what the Spirit of God is leading us to do. It was an important time. There were over 100 people from the presbytery in on that vigil. It's important to be in their space with Kamal hosting, letting them speak, just to feel the partiality that whites have created, and really to hear Christ's call to repent of the sin of our institutionalized anti-blackness. Probably like you, there's all kinds of things that have been circulated and posted and I've been listening, reading a lot and, and listening to certain videos and one of the most moving was about five minutes long. It was Van Jones. He is a news commentator on television, African-American. He was asked to reflect. This was about a week after George Floyd had been killed. And he admitted, he said, you know, if it had been a week ago, I don't think I could have even talked to you. He said this, there have been lynchings for hundreds of years, but this really broke us. This really broke the black community. Just this watching one minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes of him crying out to his mother for his life, the people around crying out. And he said, even though videos have been around for almost seven years now, this particular video grabbed the attention of the world on their smartphones. About a billion people watched without being able to explain away, well, the police are always in a difficult situation and they have to do this last minute stuff. No, 
He said it was like it shoved a piece of glass into the eyeball of everybody on this planet and they couldn't sleep, they couldn't rest, even knowing about it. And he just noticed how something is happening. He called it a miracle. Something is happening how 20, 30, 40 million white people are coming to the conclusion that racism really is real, more real than I thought. Coming to the conclusion that there's something wrong with our justice system, it's more broken than I knew, what can I do about it? He said, as an African-American man, this is all I've ever wanted. Just an acknowledgement that this is happening. And then, at the end of this video, he said, we are in some awakening, some great awakening. Much more is possible than we dared to hope for. And at this point, he gets choked up. Somebody killed a black man, and everybody cares. It's a miracle. This has never happened before. It's never happened before. Somebody killed a black man, and everybody cares. I just wish my parents were alive to see this. Could this miracle have anything to do with the story of Peter and Cornelius? Could this miracle he's talking about have anything to do with the story of Jesus Christ breaking down every dividing wall of hostility? Could this miracle that he's mentioning have anything to do with the unfolding story that we see in the book of Acts, moving out, overcoming all the Grand Canyon barriers to the no partiality love of God? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And it's true that we can still be found investing in the chasm instead of what God has joined together. And friends, if we do nothing to address systemic racism in this country, we will be doing just that, investing in the chasm, and it will continue to be a grievous sin. But this story reveals the lengths of God's no partiality love where it will go, where it will take us, how it will continue to rise up and amaze us, how God's no partiality love fulfilled in Jesus Christ will give us strength, will lead us, will give us courage to lay aside our whiteness and to go into uncomfortable situations like Peter, to listen like Peter did, and to participate in the shared baptism of all God's people, all tongues, all cultures, all languages, so that what God has joined together as one, we will never treat as separate. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray for that. We pray for your Holy Spirit to fill us, that we will be people of the miracle people of your miracle, overcoming all dividing walls of hostility in your death and resurrection in Jesus Christ. We praise you for your power. We praise you for your love. We praise you for your eyes and how you see us, all of us treasured. 
And so, Lord, we ask that we would be open like Peter was, prayerful, ready to live out the miracle of your overcoming love. Amen.